Good morning. Um, this morning we are reading from Exodus 12. I'm going to be, we're going to be reading um, verses 1 through 13. Then we're going to jump down and we're going to read verses 23 through 30. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry for in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was talking with my buddy this week about shame and how oftentimes we, we, we don't want to accept our shame. It, it's very hard to say I am wrong or I was wrong. It's hard to admit we've done something that we shouldn't have. 
there's this great scene in the movie Shawshank Redemption. If, if you've seen it, it's a kind of a movie about relationships in prison. And the two kind of protagonists of the movie, Andy and Red, it's right when they're meeting and, and Andy, who's new to prison, he goes up to Red and he, he says, well, what are you in here for? And Red, he says, don't you know that everybody's innocent in here? Don't you know everybody's innocent? And he asks the guy and he says, well, the lawyer got me. You know, it was the lawyer, it was the system. It was, it was that person's fault. It was this person's fault. It wasn't me. I, I'm not really guilty. And, and you know, we, we all kind of have that impulse, right? We, we, all, we, we, we don't want to bear our own shame. We don't want to say, yes, I messed up. I did wrong here. There, there's something wrong with me. We want to blame someone else. We want to pass it off to someone else. If only I had better parents, right? If, if only I'd gone to a better school. If, if only this wouldn't have happened to me or that wouldn't have happened to me, then, then I wouldn't have had to do this thing that, yes, of course it was wrong, but don't you see, it was this person's fault. So we either do that, we either kind of pass off our shame or we want to cover our shame, right? We, we realize we're not perfect. We realize there's things that we've done that are wrong, and so we want to justify ourselves, right? We want to say, well, yes, I've done some things that I'm not proud of, but there's so much I am proud of. <laughs> look, look where I've come. Look what I've been able to accomplish. Look what I've uh, been able to achieve. I'm the regional manager now. I went to this top school. You know, I drive this great car. I, now, I always say your justification, the thing that's justifying you, is that like first thought that enters your mind when someone cuts you off in traffic or when somebody offends you. You know what I'm talking about? Like somebody says something bad about you, somebody's cruel to you, somebody puts you down a little bit, and there's like that thought that kind of comes into your mind. It's like, yeah, but if they only knew I was second place in my whole company last year. You know, if they only knew I had this much money in my bank account, or you know, if they only knew who my family was, if they only knew if I did, that I was the one that accomplished this, if they only knew I had 3,000 followers on Instagram, if they only knew I was Delta Diamond status. They wouldn't have done that to me. That's your justification. That's the thing that you're counting on to save you. That's the thing that you're standing behind. Exodus 12, it's one of the most important passages in all the Bible. And it asks this question, and it asks this question for us today. Is the thing that you're counting on, is the thing that's justifying you is the thing that you're really hanging your hat on and saying, this is, this is my identity, this is, I'm counting on this. This is giving me value, this is, this is covering over my shame. Is the thing that you're counting on, will it stand on the day of the destroyer? <laughs> on the day when the Lord visits? Will whatever it is you're counting on hold up on that day? So two ideas I wanna look at, the, the destroyer and the lamb. Verse 23 is a fascinating verse. Like, what is this destroyer? Well, look at verse 23 with me. It says, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house to strike you. Now, this night that we talk about, it's easy to, you know, with Bible stories sometimes you get, there's some level of familiarity to them um, that we, we can kind of miss how horrific this really is. The, the, this is a horrific thing. This is one of the most tragic nights in human history. 
Every household in Egypt, someone died. Every family in Egypt, someone died. There was not a family in Egypt where someone had not died. When one person, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was, there was a couple of deaths, not of members of our church, but of close family members of, members of our church. And I was heavy for three or four days, just kind of thinking about those people and thinking about this person lost this person, this person lost that person. What if every person, every family in our church, a member, a, an immediate member of that family died? The firstborn in these days really was the, the representative of the family. I mean, it was the firstborn that carried on the family name. It was the firstborn that held on to the land and the wealth and the business of the family. It was the firstborn that had, a, had an extra sense of duty to keep up the reputation of the family. And now the firstborn of every family, this representative of the family, death had come to every family. Their, their shame, if you will, had, had its day. They had to face the consequence of their sin, their cruelty against God's people, their hardness of heart against the Lord, their cruelty toward the people that God loves. The, the price for that, all that came. Judgment had come to them, and it was a great, great price. Look at verse 29. This is, this is one of these passages that really grabbed me. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, I just love the language of this, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. <laughs> from, the, from Pharaoh to the captive. <laughs> death, death showed no favoritism. <laughs> Wealth, honor, reputation, it didn't matter. The captive, the king. Jonathan Edwards once wrote of this, death serves all alike. As he deals with the poor, so he deals with the rich. Death is not awed at the appearance of a proud palace or numerous attendants or majestic countenance. He pulls the king out of his throne and summons him before the judgment seat of God with his few compliments and as little ceremony as he takes the poor man out of his cottage. Death is as rude with emperors as with beggars and handles one with as much gentleness as the other. Now, you might be new to Christianity. You, you may have come with a friend today or maybe you're exploring. I actually met somebody right after the first service that I'm very, very new to church. I'm just trying this out, so that maybe is you. And you may be hearing all this and you're saying, well, hold on, now this is, this is <laughs> I probably picked the wrong church. I mean, this is my problem with Christianity. All this death and judgment stuff. And you guys are so concerned with the judgment of God and there's all these, all these archaic laws and this is kind of my problem. What's the deal with all of this? Well, I think that's a good question. And the thing I would say to you is, whatever kind of framework you're coming from, you know, one of the problems with postmodern thought is that it rejects that it is an orderly universe. So if you've read Derrida or Foucault or any other postmodern thinkers, their kind of big idea is that absolute truth claims 
are just tools that kind of powerful or people who are in power use absolute truth to control people, right? And so this claim on absolute truth, this claim on order is just a tool. It's a means that powerful people or people who have positions, you know, traditional power structures use to just control other people. Now, there is a, a kind of a fundamentalism like that that does exist, but it exists in all worldviews. So if you, if you look at kind of the history of Western thought, if you go from like Western Christianity to modernity uh, to post-modernity, in Western Christianity, th- there have certainly been people that have used, uh, you know, truth claims or claims about truth to kind of manipulate other people. Actually, this is the reason that we had the Reformation, right? People were being manipulated in the sale of indulgences. Uh, and, and people were saying, if you do this, if you do this. And people were getting wealthy and getting powerful using truth to manipulate. So that, that certainly happens in, among religious groups. But the thing is, it happens in all groups. It, it happens in modernity also. You know, modernity was uh, a kind of a worldview that grew so skeptical of any sort of spiritual authority or spiritual claim that it says, well, we, can only, we can't trust the notion of God. All we can trust is the physical world around us. All we can trust is what we can see and touch. The problem with that worldview is that it doesn't actually answer most of the questions that the human heart has. The, the human heart asks more questions than the physical world is able to answer. And so in a worldview like that, that removes a sense of God, the only ethic that came out of modernity is the ethic of survival of the fittest. Well, that's a very hard ethic, right? Survival of the fittest has no place for mercy or for forgiveness or for grace. It just says achieve, 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 achieve. And so if, if Western Christianity looked up for truth, if post-modernity or if modernity looked around to the physical world for truth, post-modernity has reacted against that. It says well, we can only look in for the truth, right? We can only look into our hearts. You can only find your truth. And so it rejects this idea of actual truth or actual order. But the problem is, is there, there is order. There is actual order in the world. And in all of these positions, the point I'm trying to make here is this. In all of these positions, there are people that will use their worldview to suppress another, to try to control another. Challenge the postmodern worldview of the day. Start saying that there is a God, that there is order in the universe, and see what the postmodern world will do to you. They're, they're just as, they're, they're more fundamentalistic than Western Christianity ever was. The, the, you will get excommunicated out of the church, really, or out of the modern, postmodern church, really, really fast. The point I'm trying to make is you might be sitting here and saying, what's with all these laws? What's with all this judgment? But the truth of the matter is, is everybody does this. Everybody has some sort of law or order. Everybody has some sort of judgment when that law or order is broken. And, and, and forget the postmodern or forget the archaic laws. You know, we could, we, you're condemned even by a postmodern law ethic. Let me explain. Francis Schaeffer once said that all God would have to do to condemn us, okay, all God would have to do to condemn us, and he's writing in the 70s, is to hang a tape recorder around our necks. So if you don't know what a tape recorder is, you can Google it later. But to, to hang a tape recorder around our neck and to tape 
all the judgments that we make against other people, right? So every time you say, well, she shouldn't be doing that, or I can't believe that he did that, or no one should ever do something like that, right? So all God would have to do to condemn us, so this, is, this is post-modernity, right? Just take your own postmodern value system, whatever it is, all God would have to do to condemn us is to take our own value system, the judgments that we have made through our life, and then at the judgment day, push play. And play back for us all the judgments that we made on others. And here's the deal. None of us could even live up to our own standard of judgment. We would all have said enough to condemn ourselves. How much more have we not lived up to the standard of a holy and righteous God? The truth of the matter is, is everybody believes in some form of law or justice, but the real question is, is which one is real? Which one is right? Which one is of this God? And that's really the question of this. Is the, is the form of justification, is the thing that you're counting on for righteousness, will it stand in the day of visitation? Will it stand on the day of the destroyer? This scene here, can you imagine it? Midnight comes and death comes to every house. Pain, loss. Can you imagine this scene? Death comes to every house. This horrible, horrible night. It was the day of visitation from the destroyer, but not in Goshen. Amazingly, in every house in all of Egypt that night, you could say it this way, in every house in all of Egypt that night, either a person died or a lamb died. But in Goshen, where the lambs had died, everyone who came under the blood of the lamb was safe. Egypt had this massive army. Egypt had this gold, they had this wealth, they had these massive structures, they had notoriety, they had fame, they had fortune, but the only thing that saved anybody on the 14th day of the month of Nisan was a bloody lamb, which brings me to the next point, the lamb. Now this idea of the lamb standing in for a sacrifice of sin, it's, it's very profound in Exodus 12, but this is not the first time that we see this. Back in Genesis, remember Abraham. God had called Abraham, you're gonna be a blessing. I'm gonna use you, you and your offspring are gonna bless the whole world. And finally, God had given Abraham this promised offspring, this son, Isaac, who he waited and he waited for. This is triumphant day, this glorious day. And God comes, it's an amazing story. God comes to Abraham after Isaac has been born, after he's grown up, and he goes to Abraham and he says, now I want you to take the, promised child, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Now, this is an amazing story, but, but one of the things that's so amazing about it to me, if you've read the story, Genesis 22, is how quickly Abraham obeys. <laughs> he obeys. Now, now, in one sense, you could say, well, he trusts the Lord, he obeyed the Lord, but, but there's another sense to this, I think. I think Abraham knew Maybe this is my day of visitation. Abraham knew I am not innocent. 
Abraham knew, I am not guiltless. There must be a price for my sin. God has so blessed me, and now I guess this is it. This is the price of my disobedience. The firstborn, the representative of my family, he will pay the price because of my sin. And all Abraham could do as he went to Mount Moriah is pray and hope that somehow God would provide There's this interesting scene, Isaac and Abraham, they're walking up the mountain, and Isaac says, my father, this is from Genesis 22, and Abraham says, here I am, son. Isaac says, behold, father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And amazingly, if you know the story, God, in a sense, does provide it. Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac. God stops him from this sacrifice, and God provided the lamb. God provided the sacrifice. Isaac was spared, and in this sense, the sacrifice saved one man's life, the life of Isaac. Of course, here, we see the same thing. The lamb, the sacrificed lamb, but now it's not just saving one man, it's actually saving a whole family. Verse three of Exodus 12, it says, tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their fathers, a lamb for a household. And of course, God goes on to give more instructions that the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each shall eat. You make the count for the lamb. And then, of course, God gives this very specific instructions. This household will be saved. You take a lamb. It has to be a male. It has to be a year old. It has to be about without blemish. And then at twilight, the destroyer, the Lord is visiting Egypt at midnight. But at twilight before, as the sun is going down, they all go outside and kill the lamb. The lamb must be killed at twilight. I can imagine the scene. Can Can you imagine this? Read the Bible with an imaginary sense, like, Every household, they're all living there together in Goshen. They go outside at twilight. There's all these bloody lambs. There's, they're sacrificing the lambs. They're all trusting in this thing. They're all believing in this word that God had given them that if they sacrificed the lamb and they, then they took the blood of the lamb and they, they rubbed it on the doorpost and on the lintel of their house. And then, of course, they continue to follow the instructions. They roasted the lamb over the fire with herbs. They go inside for the feast of unleavened bread, and they drink the wine, and they eat the roasted lamb. Can can you see it? I mean, can you you gotta put yourself, you're there with your family, it's all your family, it's everybody you love, you're in the household together, you can smell the herbs of the lamb, you can taste the good wine, you can feel the unleavened bread. But about midnight that night, they started to hear something. And this is a horrible thing to think about. In the distance, in Egypt, they started to hear, my son, my daughter, my son, my child, my firstborn son, why? No. They started to hear the anguish, the screams, the sorrow. Every firstborn child is gone. But everyone in Goshen that was feasting that night, 
<laughs> Feasting with their families, recognizing the Lord was with them and the sign to them that they would be safe was that the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost of the house. Now, I'm sure that some of those people, when they were following these instructions and they were painting the blood on the doorpost of their house and when they were feasting that night, they said to themselves, man, our God is showing himself right now. Pharaoh has denied him, but right now, this, our God is showing himself and, and he is our God and he is strong. Look at how God is taking care of us. I'm sure some people had that kind of faith, but I bet you some people were in the house that night and when the screams started coming, they said, are you sure you put the blood on there rightly? Did you get enough blood? Did you do it right? Did you do it right? Is it gonna come to us? It was gonna come to us? But they were shielded. I'm sure some of the people that night that were feasting were incredibly righteous. They had this sense of God. They tried to live rightly. They tried to do the right thing. But of course, many were not. Israel was not saved because of their righteousness. I'm sure many of those people that sat down that night, they were leaders, they were brilliant, they'd been successful, the people really looked to them. And some of the people were the weak and needy among them, but none of that mattered because it wasn't their righteousness, it wasn't their brilliance, it wasn't their strength that saved them. It wasn't even the strength of their faith that saved them. It was only the object of their faith. And the object of their faith that night was the blood of a little lamb. Just think about that. Everybody in Egypt went to bed that night trusting in their swords and their army and their buildings and their gold and their gods and their pharaoh and all of these strong things and none of it mattered. Every household had death come to them but here in Goshen, the people of Israel, what did they have to trust in that night? The smallest, <laughs> softest, stinkiest, weakest little animal, fluffy, the lamb. And that is what saved them. And so the blood of the lamb was precious to them that night. And from this night on, God commanded them to celebrate this Passover, to remember what God had done for them, that God had spared them, that God had given them deliverance, not only from his visitation, but also, of course, deliverance from Egypt. They were freed after this night. And so they celebrated year after year how they were saved by the blood of the lamb. Now, this wouldn't be the last time they would have to count on the lamb. God had delivered them by the lamb, by the blood of the lamb, but he actually also continually cleansed them by the ongoing sacrifice of the lamb. One of the customs of Israel after God gave them the law was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where every year the high priest would go into the temple, into the most holy place, and he would take an unblemished lamb. He would take, just like this, a, 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 a perfect little un lamb, and he would make a sacrifice there in the presence of God. And he would take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the ark of God where the presence of God was. And he, making a sacrifice to the people, confessing the sin of the people. And then he would take another lamb. He would take his bloody hands and he would take another lamb outside of the city. It was the Azazel or the scapegoat. And he would put 
his hands, his bloody hands on the head of that lamb, confessing the sin of the people, and he would send the lamb out in the wilderness to die. What's happening here? One lamb, his blood was covering their sin. One lamb, their sin was being transferred to him, and he was going off to die. They were having to trust in the lamb. And then the high priest would go back in and say, the blood of the lamb has been sacrificed. You've, your sins have been covered. And in this time, the blood of the lamb covered the whole nation. So Abraham trusted God and God provided a sacrifice and it was a lamb for a man. <laughs> the, the sacrifice for the man Isaac. In Exodus, God provided a lamb and it was a lamb for a whole family. Now in the Yom Kippur, year after year, it was a lamb for the sin of the whole nation. But many years later, there was a prophet named John the Baptist. And he would go down to the Jordan River and he would baptize people. And baptism was a sign of repentance. It was a sign of realizing, I need God's help. I need God's salvation. I have sinned. And, and while he was there in this act of repentance, in this leading people in this act of repentance, he sees Jesus coming down to the river and he points out and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. Finally, God had provided a, a lamb that could take away the sin of the whole world. And so Jesus came and he lived in all righteousness. He obeyed his father fully. His heart was always pure. He always did the right thing. He, he, he always did what he wanted to do and what he wanted to do was always what he should have done because his heart was pure. And he healed the sick and he made the blind see and he freed the oppressed and he raised the dead. And then one night it was Passover. And don't you see what Jesus did? Here they are celebrating Passover, this, this thing that the Hebrew people had celebrated year after year after year, remembering the Lord's deliverance, remembering when God freed them from the land of Egypt, remembering when God spared them on the night of visitation. And he took the bread before them and he says, disciples, don't you see this, this, this thing that you've been doing, remembering God's deliverance all this time, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he says this, this, remember this thing that you've been taking over and over and over again, this is my blood. This, this act that you've been doing to remember the deliverance of God, to remember the covering of God, to remember the night that you were spared, don't you see it's all about me? In all of the four Gospels, as the Lord's Supper is talked about, they all mention the wine, they all mention the bread, but you know what's never mentioned in the Passover account in the Gospels? You know what's never mentioned? They never mentioned the lamb. This, this would have been customary for the Passover meal. They would have gotten together, they would have eaten. It never says that. But of course we know that <laughs> the lamb wasn't on the table that night because the lamb, the true lamb, was at the table that night. The lamb of God. Their one hope. Here's the deal. God is a God of order. And that's good. He's a God of justice. And that's good. One day perfect justice will come. One day there will be a day of visitation. And everything that's evil and wrong that has ever been done will be undone. God 
will make it right. There will be a consequence. If you are praying for justice, and I hope you are going to bed every night, waking up in the morning, praying for justice in the city, I have good news for you. Justice will come. There will not be an evil per person or an evil deed that will not face justice for their evil. The people of Israel prayed out to God. They cried out to God, God, bring justice, help us. Help us, these cruel Egyptians, they've enslaved us, they're beating us, they're doing all this stuff, just bring justice, Lord. Guess what? God did bring justice. When they were praying, when they were crying out to God, you know what the Egyptians did? You know what the Egyptians did? They laughed, they laughed. Who are you praying to? When Moses came to Pharaoh, you know what Pharaoh said? <laughs> Who is Yahweh? <laughs> What kind of God is that? I don't know that God. Well, after this night, after this delivery, after the crossing of the Red Sea, no one was saying who is Yahweh. In fact, I talked about this two weeks ago, but even Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, far away, 40 years later, years, years later, when they came to Jericho, you know what she said? Oh, I know who Yahweh is. I've heard about your God, everybody knew. And, and, and I just wanna say this, on the visitation, on the day of visitation, when God comes, when God brings justice, no one will say who is God, who is the Lord, who is Jesus. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, oh Jesus, I know who he is, he is Lord. Justice will come, and that's good news, but it's also bad news because all of us have fallen short. All of us have fallen short not only of God's standard, <laughs> all of us have fallen short of our own standard. You can't even live up to the tape recorder standard. You can't even live up to your own standard of righteousness, to your own standard of justice. We all have shame, we all have sin, and God is just but, and here's the good news I have for you, he is also so, so merciful. And we all should be thinking like Abraham. <laughs> As Abraham headed up Mount Moriah, will God provide? It was right that judgment came to Abraham's house. It was right that judgment came to Egypt. It was right that judgment would have come to Israel and it's right that judgment would come to us. But the good news is that God has provided. God has provided a lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. God is merciful and he has provided a lamb. So my question to you today is, what is on the doorpost of your house? When you, when you go to bed tonight, when you live your life, what are you trusting in that will cover you, that will protect you, that will justify you? What are you trusting in? What's on the doorpost of your house and will it stand in the day of judgment? What are you trusting in? Remember how I said we, we, we all can't bear our own shame, right? We, we all either try to find something that will cover it or we try to cast it on to someone else. Here's what Jesus says to you. Jesus says, I love you so much. 
And even though Jesus was totally without sin, there's nothing to blame Jesus for, right? You might blame your parents for all your trouble, and, and the truth of the matter is, you, you probably blame them for too much, but they weren't perfect. <laughs> they did make some mistakes. What Jesus says, he comes to you totally innocent, totally without blemish, and he says, all of that shame, all of that sin, you know what you can do? You can cast it onto me, and I will bear it for you. You can cast it onto me, and I will bear it for you. And you can come to Jesus even at your lowest. You know, a lot of people say, well, I need to clean up <laughs> so I can meet Jesus. If you're saying I need to clean up so I can meet Jesus, you'll never meet Jesus. Because you can only really know Jesus, you can only really experience him like this when you're at your lowest. Remember the prodigal son? He'd made a total mess of himself. He, he took all of his family's wealth, he took it and he blew it. And he brought shame on his family, he brought shame on himself and he had lost everything, he'd been a total failure. But it was only in that moment when he realized that he was a total failure that he could realize how deeply his father actually loved him. And when he had nowhere else to turn, he could actually turn to his father. And I just wanna say this to you, in whatever your deepest shame is, the thing that you're most ashamed of, Jesus meets you in that place. And he says, I will bear it. Cast your burden on me. Cast your shame on me. We either cast our, we try to cast our burden on this, we try to find something that covered, but here's what Jesus says. He says, I will meet you, I will take on your shame, I will die in your place, I will face God wrath, and in exchange, here's what I'll give you. Here's what I'll give you to cover your life. And we, Jesus comes to us and says, I know you're proud of being the regional manager. <laughs> I know you achieved that. I'm, you're so proud of that, and you're trying to justify yourself with that, and that's great. I, I know you went to Duke, and you're very proud of that. I, I know in 20 years, if your investments all go right, you'll have a million dollars, or three million dollars, or 30 million dollars. I know you're very proud of that. But if you look to me, if you trust in me, I've got something so much greater for you. I'm gonna offer you the wealth of God. I'm gonna offer you the righteousness of God. I'm gonna offer you communion with the eternal Father. I'm gonna offer you my precious blood, the most precious thing in the whole universe to cover you, to justify you. Let me be your justification, Jesus. Let me be your reward. Trust in me, look to me, and find joy and peace in me, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and who justifies us. The one who calls us in his life to his eternal and promised kingdom. Won't you trust him? Won't you look to him today? Jesus, the Jewish people, all, year after year, they remembered God's deliverance with this meal. When at twilight the lamb was slain. And, the, and by his blood they were saved. But today as we close, I want us to remember another lamb that was slain at twilight, the Lamb of God, the Lamb Jesus, who took on our sin and on our behalf was the broken sacrifice, was the one who was broken for us. He says to his disciples and he says to us, this is my body, broken for you. Takes the cup, says this is my blood spilled for you. Won't you look to me? Won't you cast your shame on me? Won't you let my righteousness and my blood cover you today? Let's pray together.
Father, I, I pray now in this moment, in this room where we are trusting in something, we're being justified by something. I pray, Lord, we would see how weak it is that it will not stand on the day of visitation. I pray, Father, that we would that we see how strong you are, how good you are, how much hope we have in you, Lord, and how much hope we have in your son, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, give us faith to see these things today. Convict us of our sin. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to faith. Lead us to righteousness, Lord. I pray with all of you that even right now, whatever it is that's causing you to forget the Lord, that's it's taking that place of prominence in your heart, that you would repent of those things. You turn away from the Lord is convicting you of sin in your life that you would repent and that you would look to the lamb. You would behold the lamb. Even in your lowest place, God loves you and he's shown you his love in the most profound way by giving his son Jesus to take all of your sin. He, took, he has taken on all of your shame and he's covered you by his very blood, by his perfect righteousness. Trust in him today. Look to him today. Father, give us eyes to see, hearts to believe, ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name.